1661, John Bunyan, one of the great Puritan preachers and authors, sat in a prison cell in Bedfordshire, England. His crime was holding a church service that was not sanctioned by the Church of England. During that time, you could not hold a service of more than five people that was not sanctioned by the Church of England. And after a few months, he was up for release if he would simply agree to stop preaching. However, Bunyan refused, which extended his sentence from several months to 12 years in prison. Yet, if you'll remember a couple sermons back, we talked about the happy providences of God during Paul's imprisonment. Well, there was a happy providence of God during this unjust imprisonment because it became the soil in which one of the most significant books in history grew. We know it simply as the Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan gave it the fuller name, the Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come. And it was written while he was sitting there in prison. And the story is about a man named Christian who, having incurred a terrible burden, which we know was the knowledge of sin and impending judgment, after reading a certain book, he sets out to make a journey, a pilgrimage, to find freedom from this burden. And at the outset, a man named Evangelist shows him towards a shining light. He directs his gaze and he says, this is where you can find salvation. And so Christian realizes that is, if he is going to be saved, his citizenship needs to change from the city of destruction, which was the name Bunyan gave to his hometown, to the celestial city, as the book calls it, which of course we know is the kingdom of God. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, we see the tension the Christian lives in as we find ourselves smack middle in the already and not yet of God's redemption. Because, yes, we are saved completely now through the grace of God. We have been saved through faith in Christ, and our salvation is secure. Jesus said, you are mine if you've called upon me. I will not lose a single one. So, yes, that's true. And, yes, the Christian life is a battle to push back the darkness through the power of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and the darkness in our city. And of course, this tension of the already and not yet of salvation is precisely the language that Scripture uses. For instance, consider Colossians 1.13. It says this, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So that has happened. If you're in Christ your citizenship has been transferred from darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And we find these words in Acts 15.22. This is the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. It says that, that they both strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that it is through many tribulations that they must enter into the kingdom of of God. So yes to both. Well, today, as we push out into our 12th week in Philippians, we find sort of the original Pilgrim's Progress here, because 
After all, we know, like Bunyan, Paul is writing Philippians while imprisoned on account of the gospel. And in our text today, he is going to be calling the Philippians who are facing both cultural persecution and cultural temptations to remember their true citizenship, to remember what Christ has accomplished, and to live in light of that on purpose. So please open your copy of God's Word, and we will be in Philippians 1, 27 through 30 today. As you're turning there, a bit of context. Paul has just finished talking about his struggle between desiring to depart this life and to go and be with Christ and remaining in this life so that he can encourage the Philippians. And he says that he is confident that he'll have full courage no matter what the outcome is, whether life or death. So so it's on the heels of that that we pick up now. This is Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. He writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, we focused on the source of Paul's Christ-honoring courage, as we called it. And in this passage now, he is calling them to get their fighter stance ready for what is coming around the bend, so that they too can have full courage no matter what comes. And a quick parentheses here at the beginning, it's, it's worth noting a theme that we've seen in Philippians so far, so namely this. Paul will personally demonstrate a Christian virtue, and then he'll follow up by calling them to model the same thing that he has already done. So at the beginning, he has lavished his love upon them, and then he calls them to let their love abound more and more. And then Paul tells them that he prays for them constantly, without ceasing, with great joy. And then he tells them that he is dependent on their prayers for him. And then he tells them last week that he eagerly expects to have full courage to stand for Christ. And now today, he calls them to sink their heels in and to get ready to be courageous for Christ. And this is instructive for us. This, This reminds us that as we disciple each other, we do so Yes, through biblical instruction, for sure. But we also do so so through example. Or to say it another way, as you become personally more mature in Christ, it creates a godly culture. And as our culture becomes more godly, it impacts the entire congregation, including new folks that are coming as well. 
Our spiritual life does not exist on an island where it's just us and God and no one else is impacted. That type of thinking is is the rotten fruit of individualism. Rather, our sanctification together is symbiotic. We are a body. We are the body of Christ, as the scriptures say. We are in relationship. We are connected to each other under the headship of Christ. And so we impact each other. If you're not actively mortifying and fighting against sin, it hurts all of us. If there is no repentance in your life, it's like a gangrenous spot on the body. And on the other side, if you are making strides in Christian maturity, if you are growing in holiness on purpose through the Spirit, if you are walking in love, it strengthens the entire body. As the aphorism goes, a rising tide lifts all ships. This is essential to remember in discipleship because the most important truths that we impart to each other are oftentimes more caught than taught. And I believe this is part of Paul's inspired strategy as he disciples the churches through his letters and specifically here in Philippians. I'm doing this and now I'm calling you to this as well. We mature each other along the way. I heard it once said, mature Christians, mature Christians. And that is well said. And children, I want you to listen up for a second. Because this applies to you also. Your trust in Jesus encourages your siblings, it encourages your friends, and it encourages us as well. When you honor your parents, you don't just honor your parents, you honor Christ and you build up the entire church. So don't think you get a pass on this. We need you children to be pursuing Jesus because we're looking to learn from you also. Okay, so end that parenthesis. Back to the text itself now. So, I mentioned that in the passage, like Bunyan, Paul was calling them to remember their true citizenship as they encounter hostility. Well, you may have been thinking, as I read it, well, where do you see that in the text? Because I didn't see citizenship language anywhere. And you would be right with this translation. Because the reality is, it's hiding in plain sight. Because our English translation doesn't fully capture what Paul is appealing to. So beginning at the, ver- uh, so at the beginning of verse 27, get your eyes on this for a second. He says, only, and then he says, let your manner of life be. You see that? Let your manner of life be. Those six English words are really one Greek word. It is polit amahi been practicing that all week. Politiu amahi. And that's derived from the same word that we get politics or political from. And so Paul is literally saying, let this be your only concern, to live as a worthy citizen of the true kingdom. Live as citizens who are worthy to fly the banner of Jesus Christ over your life. That's what he's saying. And he'll say it explicitly later in Philippians 3.20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as when Americans send ambassadors abroad, 
and they represent America with its values and its customs and its manner of life, so it is for the Christian. Though we live in the greater Nashville area, we are first and primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are being called to represent that well. But the difference with the ambassador metaphor is we are also to build God's kingdom here. So when you go to America, it's, it's not prudent to try to Americanize everything. You're just representing America. But as Christians, not only do we represent Christ, we are called to usher in the kingdom of God in Goodlettsville. This is what we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's essential for us to grasp this nuance if we're going to hear it like Philippians. Because if you remember back to our first sermon, Philippi was actually a Roman colony, Rome being the ruling power of the day. So if you were a citizen of Rome, you were in a privileged class with certain expectations on you. Remember when Paul played the Roman citizen card when he was arrested? It meant something. So to, to use the citizen language, their ears are perking up. So when he tells the Philippians this, let your citizenship, let your way of life truly and worthily reflect the lordship of Jesus, he's speaking into a culture that knew something about finding identity and pride in citizenship. So what does it look like for Christians to live worthily as citizens of the kingdom while on earth? That's the question before us. And that's what we want to focus on in the rest of our time. What insights does Paul give for kingdom citizens to live worthy today, worthy of the gospel of Christ? And so I want to draw our attention to three this evening. First, our manner of life is worthy of Christ's gospel when, number one, they are lived from an identity, not for an identity. We are starting to live worthy of Christ when we are living not to gain an identity, but because we have been bestowed an identity. And we see this at the beginning of verse 27. Again, read along with me here. He says, Only... Let your manner of life, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, to be sure, Paul is calling them to act in a certain way. He is calling them to do certain things, and we'll get more into that in the coming verses and even into chapter 2. He'll continue this, this same theme. But he begins this exhortation to be worthy of our citizenship by placing before them first and foremost the gospel of Christ. That is what they are to walk worthily of. And what is the first principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is this, that our indwelling sin is so thorough and so pervasive that in and of ourselves, we could never become worthy of God by sheer effort. Romans 3, 9 through 11. All, everyone, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, no one is righteous, 
No, not even one. No one understands and no one seeks after God. So no one can become worthy through efforts. Or Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. This is talking about ceremonial uncleanliness. You are leprous. You cannot go into the presence of God by yourself. That's the point of that verse. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So this is the bad news that must precede the good news, the gospel. But thanks be to God. Before the foundation of the world, the Trinity proposed to redeem a rebellious people. They purposed to transfer us and transfer our citizenship from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to the kingdom of God. And this is what Christ Jesus accomplished for us. And it is a unilateral act of sheer grace, not of works, so that no one can boast. The gospel is set up in such a way that no human can boast because they were worthy of it in and of themselves. Ephesians 2, 13. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, not a citizen here, you were far away, you have been brought near, how? Through the blood of Christ. And this is why Paul calls it the gospel of Christ in our passage. So Paul, in calling them to act worthy of their citizenship, he's certainly not telling them to earn their citizenship in heaven by a certain way of living. Okay? Yes, we are called to walk worthily. We're called to walk nobly. We're called to walk virtuously and courageously and faithfully but not so that we can impress God enough to let us in. That type of thinking nullifies the grace of God. Rather, as Christians, we walk in a manner manner worthy of the gospel because we are citizens of the kingdom. We live from this identity, not to earn this identity. Or to say it succinctly, A good sign that you are perhaps walking worthy as a citizen of the gospel of Christ is when you have a keen and constant awareness that you aren't worthy in and of yourself, but have first been declared righteous, declared worthy through your union with Christ. And now because of that, you've been commissioned to be an ambassador on his behalf. 1 Peter 2, 9 articulates this beautifully. He says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Why? There's a telos here. There's a purpose for it. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The gospel is our starting point. The gospel is always our starting point. And then Paul calls them to action in light of this. Second, our manner of life is worthy of Christ's gospel when, number two, we as a church body both stand our ground 
and gain ground for Christ. We are living worthily of the gospel of Christ when as a church body we stand our ground and we gain ground for Christ in our time in this city. I see that in verses 27 through 28. So again, read along with me. We'll read those verses in full. He says, Only let your manner of life, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And here, Paul switches the metaphor from that of citizen to another picture that would have uh, evoked vivid imagery in the Philippians' ear, namely that of a soldier. So he goes from citizens to a soldier now. And Paul is calling them, as they experience hostility for Christ, to not only don't budge, but slowly and methodically move forward. You are to take ground for Christ in this battle between two kingdoms. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Philippians, helps us here, helps us wrap our mind around what he's getting at. He says here, Paul, he's thinking in terms of mortal combat. He paints the picture of an advancing line of Roman legionnaires with their long shields forming both a seamless wall before them and a roof over their heads against the enemy's arrows and spears. And so he's using specific language that's going to conjure up a military theme of they're well protected and they're moving forward together. And as Christians, our primary posture in our culture is not to be just defensive, but offensive. We're not just to protect We are to build, and we are to do it together as one body on purpose. And this is a very timely word for us, especially in light of the past year and a half, where so many things have sought to divide the church or to literally keep it from physically gathering together. And this is all, of course, a ploy by the enemy to hinder the kingdom from advancing, Because the oldest military tactic in the book is to divide a force and then to pick people off one by one. And is it any wonder that the full moral freefall culturally accelerated in such dramatic fashion while so many churches weren't gathering or were at 50%? So churches aren't allowed to gather, and then this moral decay starts to creep in almost immediately. That's not a coincidence. Why? Well, verse 25 is why. This is exactly what verse 25 is getting at. It says we must, not just individually, but as a body, have an unflinching resolve to stand firm together. That's why he wrote this. You have to stand firm together in one spirit. Of course, he's he's hearkening to the Holy Spirit there. And in one mind, and that word, that Greek word for mind is psyche. It's so much more than mind, perhaps better rendered soul. 
So you're to come together, united by the Holy Spirit, and then to have your souls intermingled where you have the same pursuit together and you're pursuing it on purpose. Paul is saying, you will be an unstoppable force for the kingdom when you are together empowered by the Spirit and you are learning to share the same soul over time. As Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But if we at Pilgrim Hill are deeply united, then the kingdom of darkness will flee before us in our time. But, as we saw, we aren't called to just hold our ground. We're called to gain ground for Christ. And so now, look at the back half of 27. So he said, stand firm, but he doesn't stop there. He then says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We don't just have a hill to hold. We have a culture. We have a kingdom to build. One that is Christ-saturated and is word-saturated and is faith-saturated. And we may get uncomfortable at times with words like work or strive for the Christian, but God isn't uncomfortable with those words at all. As long as we get him on the right side of our conversion, He's saying it's impossible to be a worthy citizen without getting to work. For Christians, striving and working hard are good, sturdy, biblical, dignifying words because there is so much work to be done right now. Ephesians 2.10 speaks to this. It says, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ. Whoa, wake up. That's the thunder. We are God's workmanship created in Christ. So God created us, and then he plays on that. You are created for good works now, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. But we aren't alone. We are striving side by side for the faith together. Every one of us has a unique, God-assigned post in the great battle right now. Wherever you are, home life, leisure life, work life, you have been put there by God to gain ground for the kingdom. And this also highlights why our, our Lord's Day service is so essential. Because battle is hard, and battle is wearying. That's why God calls us together each week so we can be strengthened together. We're strengthened through his word and through his gospel and through his spirit and through the supper. And then we're strengthened as we hear the other voices of the saints ascending to God so that when my heart isn't feeling it, I can get caught up in the community and be reminded that I'm not alone. I'm not on an island. We are in this together. So let's prioritize the gathering of the saints. Satan hates it when you come to church. So let's come to church always when we can. Remember the word picture here. We are spiritually like Roman legionnaires. As we get closer together, through the Spirit, we become a formidable force that is making purposeful progress in our city for the sake of Christ, where we're not only 
not being influenced by culture. We're creating culture together, right? We're, we're not just canceling our streaming services, right? We're filling our homes with better songs and better stories and creating a culture, one that looks like heaven based on the word of God. And by the Spirit, as 15 families do this together on purpose for a couple of years, the kingdom expands. This is what God is doing. And we strive together knowing that God will bless this and we're not alone. So many times Christians think we're just supposed to hunker down and wait for the world to explode. That is not the biblical vision. And perhaps that's why we are where we are culturally. We're not just to be defensive. We're to build. We're to be offensive. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the body of Christ. Let's build. Let's strive. Using that word on the right side of our salvation, right? And in conclusion now, a third way our manner of life, our citizenship, is worthy of Christ's gospel is three. When we embrace suffering for Christ as a gift. When we embrace suffering for Christ as a gift. Verses 28 through 30 now. He goes on. So you're striving and you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you. So mark that word, granted. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if you remember back to the planting of Philippians in Acts 16, how was Philippians planted? Well, Paul and Silas were singing hymns while in prison after being beaten and erupted the Philippian church. So he's hearkening back to that. You've, you've seen me suffer. That's why you exist, is because I suffered for the sake of Christ. So this text really couldn't be much clearer. To stand firm for Christ, to strive together forward for the sake of the gospel in 2021 in Middle Tennessee will mean that at some point we will suffer. So just settle that in your mind now. You shouldn't be surprised. Humanly speaking, to follow Christ will mean that it will cost us something. But here's the remarkable thing in this verse, and there are, there are several remarkable things. God, through Paul, isn't just saying it will happen to them. He says very specifically that when it happens, it is the grace of God upon you. The word granted there is from the Greek word charis, where we get grace or charity or kindness. So he's literally saying to suffer for Christ is God's kindness upon you. So how in the world is that true? Because that seems counterintuitive. Well, we need to get one thing clear. Suffering in itself is not the grace. So, so we don't seek out suffering. It is to be avoided, if possible. Christians aren't masochists. We don't seek out suffering. Suffering isn't the grace. However, the grace is what suffering for Christ produces. And in this context, 
It confirms our salvation. It confirms the authenticity of our conversion. Paul says it clearly. When hostility and suffering comes your way for Christ's sake, and rather than backing down, you stand firm and you absorb it and you double down, whatever the consequences, whether your job is threatened or your reputation is vandalized or your business is boycotted, however it might come, this is a clear sign to you of your salvation and their destruction. Because why else would you do it? except that you have become loyal to the core, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a high honor for you, even a gift of God, to have the chance to stand up tall and to be proud for the Lord Jesus. And we do this knowing that our citizenship in the kingdom was purchased by a suffering servant who has now become the Lord of glory. And Paul will point to this more in greater detail in chapter 2. And Peter, in his first letter, he builds on this theme. So hear this, Pilgrim Hill. Let this sink into our bones now, while the going is still relatively easy. The trials certainly are afoot. 1 Peter 4, 13 through 14. He says this, listen to this. Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Do you believe that? Or are you outraged, shocked that Babylon doesn't applaud Christ? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And another word to the children. Listen up here, because you guys really need to prepare. This verse, when it talks about Christians not being frightened by opponents and suffering for Christ's sake, it applies to you also. Children, since you are a Christian, you will look different than the world. First, you'll look different in how you live, what you're allowed to watch, when you're allowed to get social media, why you go to church, the certain jokes that you don't laugh at, why you don't gossip at people. You will look different by how you live because you're a, ch a Christian, and you will look different because you believe in Jesus Christ. And children, at some point in the coming year, other kids will probably make fun of you for this for living to please Jesus Christ, for believing in Jesus. And this won't feel good. No one likes that. I don't like it when that happens. And when that happens, you will be tempted to be afraid of what they think. When you get made fun of for Christ, you will be tempted to be more concerned about what people think about you than what God thinks about you. And you might not think it's fear, but it is. The fear of being thought uncool, or old-fashioned. And when that happens, I want you to remember these verses here. One, as a Christian, you're not afraid of what anybody says when it comes to what Christ has said. And two, when you suffer for Christ, you have the applause of heaven over your entire life. 
You have the smile of God down on you, saying, well done. So few people do this. Well done. And that will confirm that you are Christ's. So yes, let us all prepare to suffer well for the kingdom. Let us stand tall for the Son, for the Savior, because we know glory awaits. And let's get to building the kingdom, because there's a lot of church to do, a lot, a lot of work to do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for changing our citizenship from the city of destruction to the city of the Son. May this week our lives be worthy of the Lord Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I, I pray that even in these young days in the life of our church, you would unify us as a body, that we would be of one spirit and one mind. And through that, you would cause your kingdom to expand these days in our midst. We pray these things through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever.